Welcome to Risk Roundup. Today, we the humans are no longer confined to what nature must offer. The advances in science and technology has given us the capability to create things, while what nature has given is still the foundation to our natural biological ecosystem. We the humans are now able to build on this foundation and create a man-made synthetic bio-ecosystem of our desire and definition. We have reached a point where tools and technology to define and design entire human and non-human genomes have caught up to our ability to construct them. In the coming years, we will be able to design and construct any cell, organism, or any biological species we want with a growing selection of genome from human, non-human, or and, and or any other living species. The time is almost here where the ability to create or manipulate life seems restricted only by the imagination as we will now be able to build any cell, organism, or biological species up from scratch. It is said that there is no such thing as an artificial gene. And what matters to a gene is sequence and not how one makes that sequence. It is this ability to synthesize DNA sequence from living and non-living species that has completely transformed much of everything. As a result, the industrial age is slowly but steadily drawing to a close to the and to be gradually replaced by an era of biological engineering. Nations are going to tra translation from an economy. They are going to transition from an economy that relied on machines to the one that relies on biology. It is therefore important to understand and evaluate the changing nature of economy, its impact on respective nations, its government, industries, organizations, academia, and individuals. To discuss this further, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Nathan Hilson to Risk Roundup. Dr. Nathan is the Director of Synthetic Biology Informatics at Joint Bioenergy Institute and is based in California. He's also the founder and chief scientific officer of uh, Tesla Agent Biotechnology. Uh, welcome, Dr. Nathan. We're delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you. I'm very happy that I can join you today. Wonderful, Nathan. So it seems the field of synthetic biology holds an inspiring vision for the future. What is it about synthetic biology that is exciting everyone? Well, synthetic biology is actually a fairly broad endeavor. Um, largely speaking, a lot of people might say that it's just trying to apply the engineering principles to biology. So thinking about biology instead of just the, the basic science that people have been doing for a long time, trying to apply engineering principles around modularity, um, reproducibility, um, reliability, um, predictability, all of these, these types of engineering approaches and applying those towards, towards biology. And there's lots and lots of different application spaces for synthetic biology. So many people might be familiar with things like some of the biomedical or therapeutic types of applications of synthetic biology. There's applications of synthetic biology just to enable us to understand the basic science better. There's also lots of things that you can do with synthetic biology in terms of using biology to make things um, that are of use to people. So things like uh, materials or chemicals or, or fuels things that might ordinarily be manufactured um, from petrochemicals. Yes, that is a wonderful explanation, Nathan. Now, synthetic biology, so basically it seems to be about writing and programming new DNA with the goal of creating 
genetic machines from scratch based on my understanding and whether it be a new cell organism or species by combining elements of engineering chemistry computer science and molecular biology now when we talk about the production of a new human designed biological systems for the benefit of human society what is the potential the advances in engineering chemistry computer science and molecular biology has brought us well i think there's there's several different ways to to think about it and as we we're kind of getting back to the synthetic biology might be the application of engineering principles to to biology um, once you actually kind of have a robust engineering cycle where you can actually be a little bit more predictive in what you're doing towards what your eventual goal is, I think the rate of progress that people will be seeing towards any number of applications will be greatly accelerated. So that's just some things to, to keep in mind. Now there might be many, many different types of application spaces. So if you're talking about trying to think about maybe human health versus trying to um, work with ecosystems versus trying to um, be um, applying these these techniques in other areas. Um, generally, the the overall kind of idea is that this our rate of progress will be much more quick now that we're applying kind of more rigorous engineering principles as opposed to just kind of um, you know try and and error you know types of types of approaches that we maybe people have been doing in the past. Yes, yes, that is a good explanation. Now, as we have learned more about how to read and manipulate genetic code. We have begun to take genetic information associated with useful features from one organism and add it to another one. Now, since we can create new cell or new organisms, plants, and hopefully animals and perhaps humans in the coming years, are we not redefining the very meaning of evolution? So I guess there's, there's several um, aspects to that. And, and the first thing is I think in Previously in the conversation, you mentioned this idea maybe of engineering organisms from scratch. And there might be some, some people in, in the field that are kind of interested in doing those types of things, maybe minimal organisms or actually um, having the, the ability at some point in time to be able to do things from scratch. I would say the, the probably the on-the-ground reality right now is more about making slight modifications to existing systems um, rather than you know complete redesign. Um, of an organism. Um, it's also really, really important that, that scientists and engineers are thinking more broadly about the aspects and implications of the research, um, such as the, the ethics and, and morals and social justice and environmental consequences. Um, there's lots and lots of implications of all of these things. And it's very careful for people to be thinking ahead of time, if I am, am going to be accomplishing this goal, what are going to be the, the impacts just above and beyond just what may, my scientific publication would be or maybe above and beyond what my commercial product is going to be? Because a lot of these technologies are going to have far-reaching applications, and we all live together on one, in one planet, and, and you know, as, as a big population, we all have some deliberative um, democracy types of ideas around you know, we should all have some, some consent and some buy-in to what people are actually doing. Yeah. Um, so it's important to communicate what we're doing and to think more broadly about the work than just what we're doing at, at, the, at the bench. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. No, I agree with you that at, at this point, we are not creating you know, any species or any organism from scratch. But at the same time, when you have the potential, human mind is very curious. When we have the potential, it's just a matter of time before someone tries to do that. And when we try to do that, there are a lot of implications, as you suggested, 
that we have to be very careful about, even though, you know, it's a democratic society and there are no regulations that prevents anyone from, you know, uh, creating such organism or any living thing uh, anywhere in the world. We have to be very careful where we are going. So that brings, you know, the point that what is the ultimate goal of synthetic biology? Where is the scientific community going with this? Yeah, well, I guess the first thing that I would say is there are lots of regulations already in place, many of them going back decades, and many of them kind of do cover the, the scope of where we're going. Um, you know, so I wouldn't say there's no regulations and, and people have best practices and there are lots of standard biosafety practices, biomedical practices. So it's not that there are no regulations. Um, I think that maybe something that people have been thinking about is that is the pace of technology development outpacing the regulatory frameworks. So I know that at least in the United States, the National Academies has been putting a lot of attention in all these new emerging technologies and trying to, to work together with some of our regulatory agencies to make sure they kind of keep up, keep up the pace. So that's maybe just one little thing that, to point out is that there are existing regulations um, and there might be you know, others you know, besides myself who might be more eloquent and able to speak to the, the regulatory aspects of these things. Um, so that's, that's, that's one particular area. And there's many other kind of aspects where we could potentially talk about, especially if you're interested in risk, some of the risks associated with some of these activities. There's lots of people that have been um, talking about one technology in particular, gene drives, which might be able to impact um, in a very significant way in a very quick time frame um, some of some ecological systems. Um, so you kind of you know, mentioned um, maybe these things are happening a lot faster than they had in the past, they might have very far-reaching um, implications. Um, and how do we think about these, these types of things? So there's been lots of discussions around technologies like gene drives. Um, if you have engineered organisms and somehow um, a, a kind of a catastrophic event happens and they get exposed into the environment, um, are those organisms going to be contained? Are they going to be impacting the, the ecosystems? What's going to be happening? Those are entirely also really, really big topics, and I think a lot of people have been thinking very carefully about those. Um, and that especially is going to be important for some of these applications where maybe you're trying to go into the environment and do remediation. So maybe there's a, um, a heavy metal um, you know, spill, um, or maybe kind of legacy um, type of work from you know, back in the, the, the early days of the, of the nuclear programs, and you're trying to do enrichment of all these heavy metals. Um, or maybe even now um, in some countries where they're doing lots of mining for things like copper or other, other precious metals, um, there might be some really interesting applications where you could deploy um, into the environment engineered organisms that can really help you accomplish your task, whether it's trying to remediate some type of a toxic spill or actually trying to harness maybe very um, dilute um, but very precious metals um, from the environment. Um, and I think especially for some of those environmental applications, it's going to be very, very important to understand how your um, engineered organism is going to be behaving in the context of, of the overall ecosystem. Now, most of the applications that people have been talking about are probably going to be more contained types of applications. So maybe in the biomanufacturing space, you're talking about kind of keeping them contained within fermentation reactors. Um, or maybe um, in some kind of biomedical, you know, therapeutic diagnostic applications contained within devices. And they're really not intended to be um, disseminated into the environment. So you have some best practices and regulations around how you dispose of these um, devices or what do you do after you have a, a batch in your fermentation tank. So do you autoclave them? Do you, do you bleach these organisms? How do you basically properly dispose of them so that they don't actually make it downstream into the environment. And 
Other folks have even been trying to put in some engineering controls inside of the organisms themselves so that, for example, maybe the organism really um, relies upon a combination of very specific molecules that are just not available in the environment. They might be 10 special ingredients that are completely man-made that there's basically no natural source of. Um, so there, there's a variety of, of approaches that people have been trying to look into in terms of um, containment, but these are all very, very um, important and interesting questions. And maybe in follow-up um, kind of discussions like these, you can have um, some conversations with people that are very informed in, in that space as well. Absolutely. No, that is the goal that, you know, we won't be able to cover each and every topic that we want to cover uh, in this session. So we are going to talk, you know, heavily on regulation and other topics in the upcoming sessions. But today we'll just, you know, briefly uh, have an overview about all these topics that does matter because a biological part can be anything from a DNA sequence. Uh, to a promoter and the problem is that many parts have not been characterized well and they haven't always been tested to show what they do and even they when they have the performance can change with different cell types or different kind of laboratory conditions and when you release them in the out in the environment it creates it, there are more variables to interact and it creates more complex situations so this is a cause of concern so how will we control unexpected complexities if we just talk about this particular risk that you know what we come up with you know during a laboratory experiment is not necessarily what will happen in the out in the environmental ecosystem so how are we planning to control such unexpected complexities because at this point the mit's uh, you know it has uh, almost uh, if i am correct 5000 parts available it could be more to order and uh, none of them you know they don't uh, guarantee any of their quality or how their performance would be so there are a lot of you know complexities and there are a lot of complex challenges uh, that brings many kinds of risk because of you know the stage where we are in the, in the development of this uh, uh, ecosystem. So how are the scientists thinking of controlling those kind of unexpected complexities? Yeah, so you had a, a lot of interesting things in that, in that last statement, and maybe I'll just kind of pick on two of them. And the first one, I think I would completely agree, and many people would agree, that right now, um, a lot of biology is, is very context dependent. Um, so, so maybe in a, in a cell phone, you can isolate a given transistor for every single other transistor in the chip. So all you have to do is really understand how that one transistor works in isolation. And it's kind of basically, um, it's compartmentalized. Um, and it's, it's basically kind of decoupled from the, from the rest of, of the system. Um, so as long as you understand it kind of in isolation, it's so modular that you can basically just put a whole bunch of parts together and they're all going to kind of behave as they kind of did by themselves. In biology in general, at least right now, um, a lot of our understanding isn't to that, that level of, of uh, engineering practice. So like you're saying, if you maybe if you have one particular component in one organism and now you want to study it in a slightly different organism, does it perform in exactly the same way? And in general, at least for, for us right now, the answer is no. It generally will have a slightly different performance characteristic. So now the question that you're asking is, okay, so now if biology is extremely context dependent, um, and maybe also coupled that with maybe our predictive tools aren't fantastic, so we can't maybe a priori predict ahead of time what the performance is gonna be as you go from one organism to another, then how do you kind of put sufficient controls in place? Um, and just within any engineering um, type, of, type of a discipline, there's many different types of controls um, that you can, you can put into place. Um, so maybe certain types of things you can establish kind of normal um, 
operating um, conditions, normal operating paradigms that you say, as long as you're considering how this is going to operate within this range of organisms, with, within these particular environmental conditions, this is how we expect this particular component to, to operate. Now that isn't going to get you all the way there because maybe you're I don't know, operating outside of those, those conditions, things that you couldn't have, have predicted ahead of time. Um, so then basically there's other types of engineering controls and you can kind of think of physical controls. Um, so we kind of talked about some of the containment types of issues. So there can be physical containment. So if you're mostly interested in a, in a microbial type of a system, how do you kind of keep it physically isolated from, from the outside world? How do you make sure that you properly kind of um, either autoclave or sterilize a culture before you send it downstream to a wastewater treatment plant? Um, and then you can kind of think about these, these catastrophic failure scenarios where maybe, you know, after you run a fermentation tank, for some reason the autoclave method um, fails or, or maybe um, you have a bad um, batch of bleach that doesn't actually kill all the organisms and somehow some of them make it downstream to a wastewater treatment plant. Um, and that's when you kind of need to start thinking about these other, you know, types of, types of controls. Are there um, ways of doing monitoring? So, for example, are we... Um, able to, to monitor when maybe something like this happens. Can you detect in a downstream wastewater treatment plant when maybe some of these organisms have actually made it, um, made it downstream? Um, we already kind of mentioned a little bit earlier about some of, some of these more internal genetic types of controls, um, that if, if an organism is outside of a very um, controlled you know, type of an operating condition, then maybe it's no longer able to, to, to propagate itself. Um, and you also mentioned um, things like, okay, well, we, we understand very well that it's pretty much one common genetic code, and sometimes you can take um, genes from one organism and put them into another organism, and they'll still be operational to a certain extent. So if you're concerned not only about your engineered organism surviving in the environment, um, but it potentially transferring its genes to other organisms in the environment, or potentially receiving genes from organisms in the environment, how might you think about trying to um, mitigate you know, some of those possibilities? So some people have also been thinking about trying to do um, highly recoded um, types of kind of genetic structures. So instead of having kind of the common um, translation table from, from DNA to proteins, what would happen if you had a slightly different encoding table? So if you have it from your, your organism of interest, a particular set of DNA is going to result in one amino acid, but everywhere else in the world, in the environment, all the other organisms are going to be translating it to a slightly different message. So then you have kind of concepts around, it's not really cryptography, but it's kind of like that, that maybe in your organism of interest, you have a particular way of translating, and then everyone, every, all the other organisms in the world are speaking a different language, and they won't be able to, to understand it. So there, there, there can be you know, some, some mechanisms in place where you can try to prevent um, these downstream scenarios from happening. Um, so there's lots of really brilliant people working on a lot of these different types of solutions. And I think the idea is with all of these, these risks and all of these analysis, it's basically just layer upon layer of engineering controls. So, I mean, there's lots of uncertainties and we don't absolutely know, know everything, but if you have enough of these controls in place, um, you know, the, the expected, you know, probability that, that something is going to happen is, is is basically attenuated um, to the point where the the benefit is greatly exceeds the greatly exceeds the risk. Um, another thing that's going to be really important that I think that people haven't had the opportunity to do as much as they might want to do is actually do some some field testing. 
So for example, people might be developing all of these containment systems um, in the context of just a, a laboratory, you know, at, at a, a laboratory bench. But until you actually get into the field and you deploy these strategies, do they actually work as advertised? Um, so it, it becomes much more complicated and much more expensive to, for example, could you do um, a, a field trial where you're actually investigating what would happen if my microbe um, were in the soil with other organisms? What's going to happen? Or what happens if my organism actually makes it downstream into a wastewater you know, treatment plant? What actually is going to happen there? Um, and I think that um, it would be fantastic if the U.S. government and, and others around the world actually invested in some of these really important studies to actually get the real data what would actually happen as opposed to people making these hand-wavy arguments that, you know, we did such and such and the chances are so low, it's never going to happen. Um, and we can actually start to assess some of those things. But I don't think that's happened as much as we, we might want to like to already. Um, but another thing just to add in, in, in passing is that, um, you know, it's one thing to think about, okay, there's, there, there might be some of these outcomes that we don't want either as a country or as, as a global population. Um, or maybe certain populations might be benefited more than others. Um, and it's one thing to say that, okay, we don't want to tolerate these downstream, you know, outcomes. We should just, like, basically prevent, in a precautionary type of an approach, um, we should basically prevent these things from, from happening in the first place. Um, but you always have to weigh that against kind of the opportunity cost of the benefits that you would lose. So if you just go ahead and say that we're going to completely... Um, you know, avoid um, doing any of these types of technology developments or product developments, then you have to think about all of the, all of the people that might be adversely, you know, impacted. Um, so whether that's, that's um, you know, um, energy security or whether that's health security or, or food security um, or just, you know, being able to have higher quality of life, um, higher, you know, environmental conditions. There might be lots of benefits that we might be foregoing if we just decide that we don't want to go down this path. So it's, it's always a cost-benefit, you know, a risk analysis. So, you know, what are the, the, the bad outcomes and how can we mitigate those as, as best as possible while still achieving all of these, these good upsides? Of course, of course. And uh, we should never try to stop uh, progress in science and development because that, you know, is the economic engine. And we always want, you know, new technologies, new innovations, new way of doing things. But here my concern is that, you know, anybody could... Uh, with the you know current framework that we have that anyone can purchase the gene that they want or anyone can hire you know computer scientists to add to the synthetic gene and anybody can sitting in any part of the world they can create any organism to create you know a pathological uh, organism to wipe out the human you know species that is a possibility so, now again we don't need to be afraid of that we just need to put together proper effective control so that we can control and we can track who is building because right now there is no uh, requirement that only if you are affiliated with an institution you are in you know entitled to purchase this kind of genes or whatever other you know material you require to create you know uh, any synthetic uh, organism or living thing there is no requirement like that so anybody could uh, uh, purchase whatever they want and that is the big fear here we don't have effective regulation and even if we have regulations this is something we will not be able to control because you know how would anyone know if somebody sitting in their basement or garage or their you know uh, lab in a warehouse they create some kind of organism there is no way to do that unless we use effective technology 
to you know track and to monitor we do have you know amazing advances in technology but again that is not the goal of the discussion here uh, we will have uh, we will address that what technology to use to you know effectively track who is developing what and you know what kind of uh, advances are happening in what part of the world and who is creating what organism who is buying what you know what kind of genes and what could be their goal for that so that is a topic of whole other discussion let's you know talk a little bit about the bioeconomy the economic activity that is fueled by research and innovation in the bio biological sciences it's a uh, you know very promising and it's uh, understandably very promising because it's based on the synthetic biology that has a huge potential what potential do you see the bioeconomy bringing to all nations not just united nations but united states not just united states but all nations so I would really like to talk about the bioeconomy, but I think I should at least touch upon some of the, the, the remarks you made about maybe some of like the, 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 um, the biological weapons or how easy it is to actually um, make these organisms or obtain genes and things like that. Um, and my first remark would be that maybe the community has kind of overhyped our capacity and our ability to actually engineer living systems. Um, it's really not as easy as some might be claiming it to be. Um, even in a very well, you know, resourced institution like the Joint Bioenergy Institute, um, oftentimes the biological systems don't behave as we would like them to. And we're highly trained, highly resourced. We have, you know, brilliant minds here. Um, and oftentimes what we want to have happen basically isn't the way that biology works out. Um, I think oftentimes when you get computer scientists, you mentioned maybe a computer scientist could just come in and design a new gene. I think oftentimes computer scientists are extremely excited about synthetic biology, but when they actually come and get a reality check that it's not nearly as, as easy as they thought, um, computer programming is, is trivial in certain ways because it's people that make all of the rules. If a, if a, if a program doesn't compile or generates the incorrect you know, output, you can always go back into the program and figure out exactly why it's not working. It's not that easy with biology. You can't just you know, debug like a microbial system as easy as you can, you know, some type of a, of a, of a piece of software. Um, so it's not, it's not that easy to just go in and, and do these things. I don't, I don't want anybody in the public to be misled to thinking that this is actually easy. This is actually still extremely hard and there aren't too many places around the world that can do this effectively. Um, the other thing just to, just to remark is that um, there is an international gene synthesis consortium and they basically have a very well regimented set of practices um, along together with the United States Department of Health and Human Services, they have guidelines for um, synthetic providers of DNA. So these, all of these um, synthetic um, commercial companies are screening not only the sequences, so for example, they won't sell you sequences that are highly homologous to a virus um, or to select agents or other things of concern, um, but not only do they screen the sequences, they also screen the people. And I would, I would disagree with you that anybody can get access to these to these gene sequences. Um, synthetic vendors generally nowadays um, are going to be very careful about who they they send these these genes to. Um, so as you're saying, there might be some companies um, that might be following slightly different sets of practices, and they might be more willing to to send it to some people than than others. But there are, um, I mean, the, the vast majority of companies that are in this space are following these guidelines, and, and they're actually doing a, a good job about it. And I think the, the federal governments are very, you know, um, interested in this, and there's also export control laws, um, which also kind of are, are very sensitive to the types of instruments and equipment 
that can then be fabricating these types of things. So I think there's lots of people that are um, paying a lot of attention to it. So not only is it um, not that easy to do, but there are quite a few controls in place to make sure that people aren't doing the wrong, the wrong kind of thing. Um, now you can have complete, you know, long, long discussions with other people around bioweapons and, um, you know, dual use research of concerns. Um, but I would really like to get back to what you're asking about was the bioeconomy. Um, so I think that's extremely, extremely important. Um, and just so that people kind of are familiar with what the, the bioeconomy bio is, um, it's basically just the, the portions of our economy that are really enabled through biology. Now that, that includes agriculture. So all of the systems that generate our food, it's going to be lots of the, the biomedical um, types, of, types of space. So um, all of our therapeutics and our diagnostics, um, things that rely on biological you know, types, of, types of systems. It's also kind of just regular industry. Um, so a lot of our, um, our chemicals and materials are sourced um, from, from biological means. Um, as opposed to maybe just purely um, from petrochemicals or, or other types of other types of processes, and you know it, it turns out that the the bioeconomy around the world, not just in the U.S., is growing at a at a very fast very fast rate, and it's also very important for individual countries um, to strategically think about their competitiveness in terms of in terms of their their bioeconomy. So. For example, in the United States, the Department of Energy has conducted um, a study several times, it has updates recently, that essentially in the United States, they have about a billion metric tons of biomass that's available per year that could get used for useful purposes. So that doesn't include things like all of our food crops um, or all of the, the forest um, forestry products that we use for paper or for um, timber. It doesn't um, include basically things that we'd normally be using things for. Um, but you think that you, the United States has a billion metric tons of biomass that it could be doing something productively with every year. Um, you know, maybe the, 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 the first thing that you might think of that you could just do is burn it for its energy content. So maybe you could just burn all of this biomass and, and drive turbines to generate electricity. That's probably the, um, it's, it's, it's useful, but it's probably problematic in that you might be able to make a lot of more value out of that rather than just burning it to make other useful products. And also, if you just burn the biomass directly, um, well, then maybe you're just releasing all that carbon into the into the atmosphere, and that might not be something that you want to be um, might want to be doing. Um, but I think a lot of the interest in, in the bioeconomy right now is how do we take all of this biomass? And it's not just in the U.S. There's many places around the world um, that have lots of available biomass. And how do you really make very useful things out of this biomass? So how do you kind of convert your existing you know biomass, whether it's agricultural residues? Um, or whether it's municipal waste, um, or whether it's basically just, um, you know, maybe in, in places where you can kind of grow dedicated crops for, you know, various types of grasses or trees. Um, how do you kind of convert that all into useful products that you can sell? Um, so some of those products might include things like fuels. Um, so can you kind of convert, um, you know, some, some grasses that you can kind of grow, um, maybe in some prairies into, into things like gasoline or diesel or jet fuel replacements? Um, can you make them into these commodity um, types of types of chemicals? So instead of driving all of our um, chemicals from petroleum, could we also um, think about sourcing them um, from biological types of feedstocks, from from plants, so like trees or or grasses or or other types of things? Um, in addition to chemicals, I mean, you could think about things like therapeutics. You could think about um, the components of materials, and then I think there's there's a lot of people that have been thinking about how can they do direct drop-in replacements. 
So maybe if the chemistry or you know synthetic chemistry industries right now, um, oftentimes they'll use certain building block chemicals. So a lot of people are trying to figure out, okay, how can I get a biological route to produce that same type of a chemical building block? Because maybe if I can beat the price point of a petroleum process, then maybe I'm going to make a lot of money because maybe it only costs me 50 cents to produce something from a plant where if I have to get it from oil, it's going to cost me a dollar. Um, or maybe it's not just about the actual you know, price. Maybe it might be um, that you have um, lower operating expenses. So maybe the petrochemical process requires high temperatures or extreme solvent conditions. Um, and, and, and maybe the biological process is, is a little bit more moderate. Um, maybe the waste streams are easier to process, and et cetera. So there might be lots and lots of reasons um, for why you'd want to go after more of a biological-based approach than a, than a chemical-based approach. And sometimes it's also really interesting to think about hybrids between the two. So maybe you're using biology for what biology is really good at and, and more traditional chemistry for what chemistry is, is, is very good at. Um, but beyond just kind of going after you know, things like fuels or chemical building blocks, there's a lot of interest also in trying to use biology to make things that's very difficult to access through traditional synthetic chemistry. So representatives of that might be things that are highly um, kind of, um, in, in certain, certain chemicals you have um, kind of these, these regions of the, of the molecules where they're basically like one hand or the other, so like right-handed or left-handed. So kind of like the stereochemistry. So it turns out that in, in a lot of synthetic chemistry, oftentimes it's really difficult um, to site selectively control maybe the, the, the stereochemistry of, of a particular part of a molecule. But maybe biology is fantastic at that. Um, so if you can come up with a biological route, you might be able to make entirely new chemicals or entirely new materials that chemistry might have a really hard time accessing. So you can imagine not just replacing what we already have, because maybe it's cheaper or, or faster or, or for whatever reason, but you can imagine entirely new types of chemicals and molecules that might have entirely different performance characteristics than what you could achieve through traditional petrochemical, you know, synthetic chemistry types of types of things. Um, so I think there's lots of really, really exciting um, work that's happening across all, all of these spectra. Um, so it's clear that you know the bioeconomy is growing very quickly. It's very important to the to the to the U.S. It's several percentages of our gross domestic domestic product. It's not a small it's not a small industry. Um, we're talking about you know hundreds of, of billions of dollars a year easily. Um, and then when you're talking about a little bit about risk assessment, now you kind of have to think about you know from maybe a domestic you know policy type of view. Um, you know, what, what are your, your risks to, to, to these economies? So if you're talking about hundreds of billion dollars a year, um, this could potentially, you know, be uh, a risk that you don't want, for example, some other nation state or maybe a non-state actor to jeopardize your, your economy. So, for example, we wouldn't want to have uh, another state be able to shut down our food production. Um, that would be a, a, a very, very bad thing for us. So, you know, what are, what are the, the actual risks? And so I think food production is something that a lot of people understand. Um, but increasingly, as we use biology to make more and more of our, of our chemicals or our plastics, our materials, our fuels, our therapeutics, our diagnostics, it's really important to realize that um, the, the bioeconomy has its own, you know, sets of sensitivities and, and risks. And since it's such a new um, type of a, a technology and a new industry, um, I think that it's just starting to kind of realize that it needs to pay attention to, to um, certain types of aspects. 
Um, so for example, maybe in the in information technology domain, there's been lots and lots of talk recently about cybersecurity. So how do you kind of keep all of your information um, protected and private and not susceptible to outside um, you know, actors kind of getting in? Um, but increasingly, as the bioeconomy is also powered a lot by information, I think people in the bioeconomy are also increasingly going to be um, trying to look at their own cybersecurity in terms of their um, their their actual applications and, and their you know pipelines and, and their protocols. And certain things to think about in terms of the bioeconomy is that it's not that all of these activities are happening in one central facility. So it's not like you can have one central facility and just have firewalls and, and make sure that you can completely control everything within that facility. A lot of the bioeconomy is almost distributed by nature. So a lot of the feedstocks, um, they're, they're basically their price points are so low that it's almost you know, cost prohibitive to ship the feedstocks too far. So for example, if you're growing in, in maybe um, in the middle of, of the United States, if you're growing a lot of straw um, or, or certain other types of crops, you almost need to upgrade those, those materials to a more valuable product within maybe like a, say a 60 or 100 mile radius because to actually load all of that straw and ship it on a shipping container or like a train car, it's gonna cost you more to ship that particular feedstock than um, maybe you can just buy it you know, some, somewhere else. Um, so it's gonna be very important to have all of these biorefineries very distributed across the world and, and across the, the country. So you're gonna be kind of, by default, all these activities are gonna be distributed. Um, and it's also the, the, the case that a lot of the, the infrastructure around the bioeconomy is also distributed. So there might be some really fantastic analytical facilities in one part of the country and maybe scale-up facilities in another you know, part of the country. And it's not just like one you know, small factory um, in the Midwest that's doing everything. It's lots of activities across lots of different people. Um, and there's physical um, objects that are getting shipped around, but there's also all the information really important information. As we kind of talking about the very beginning of the conversation, um, synthetic biology is becoming much more of like an engineering discipline. Um, and a lot of the, the engineering disciplines are really around this engineering cycle where a big you know, part of, of, of why you can do things fast now is that you can simulate or you can do really good predictions. And a lot of that simulation or prediction capacity um, is basically built on top of lots and lots of data. So basically you've studied in the past how all these systems behave, and based on how these systems have behaved or, or um, acted in the past, you can kind of predict or simulate how maybe a modification to that system might, might behave. Now if you're, if you're generating all of these designs based on all of this data, and you're relying upon all of these simulation tools or these predictive tools, um, and this is basically the backbone of your bioeconomy, now you can imagine that if you don't really protect all of that data, if you don't protect you know, all of these, these simulation um, types of tools or these predictive types of tools, um, or you don't protect your, your samples, so maybe if somebody tamp tampers um, with your samples you know, between point A and point B, and now you're actually you know, trying to scale up an, an organism that's completely different than the organism you intended, then there can be lots of you know, points in the, in the supply chain or the information chain that are susceptible to attacks. So I think now, the, at least in the United States, the, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, is looking very carefully um, at how they basically can secure the bioeconomy. So it's not just about bioweapons, it's actually trying to make sure that we don't have bad state actors or non-state actors start to disrupt our bioeconomy. 
And I think that's where a lot of kind of the, the interest is right now is not just around bioweapons, but really kind of protecting these billions, hundreds and billions of dollars um, of economic activity. Um, yes, very it's, it's, it's very, very important. Yes. Now go finish that, please. Oh yeah, that was that was pretty much the end of end of end of the thought there. Yeah. Right, right. No, you are absolutely right that there is the, a very heavy focus on protecting what we have, the intellectual property, and how to uh, do uh, all the innovate innovation data and everything surrounding it we have to protect that and because we are working towards solving critical challenges in manufacturing energy healthcare agriculture and environment and uh, there is a very severe competition you know going on between nations so talking about their competitiveness which nation do you think is taking a lead in bioeconomy at this point because from my understanding europe is very aggressively working towards it uk brazil and asia and United States, of course. So, which, uh, where, who is leading the effort at this point? Yeah, and I would also mention India. I don't know if I, if I, if I heard you, you mentioned India also, but they're they're also very, very, you know, interested in working working in this space as well. But yeah, you already kind of mentioned all the all the big players. I mean, probably maybe the the major incumbent um, is the U.S. Um, so, as you travel around the world, I think a lot of people look to what's happening in the U.S. in terms of biotechnology and the bioeconomy and synthetic biology. Um, but but Western Europe has been doing you know fantastic fantastic work. Um, I think in a lot of ways um, the efforts ongoing in Western Europe are extremely um, compatible and complementary to, to what's going on in the United States. Um, especially kind of when you look at um, kind of a physiological understanding of, of organisms. I think um, you know some of the, the countries in Western Europe are far surpassing what's happening in the states. And then maybe in the U.S., maybe around some of the molecular biology or some of those other types of technologies, maybe we're a little bit more advanced here. Um, if you look at places like China, China is investing tons and tons of resources in trying to come up to speed um, with, with places like Western Europe or, or, or the U.S. Um, so they have lots and lots of people. Um, they have lots of resources. They have the will. They have the motivation. Um, and they have their own sets of challenges that they need to they need to address. Yes. Um, and you mentioned places like um, maybe Brazil, mm -hmm. and Brazil is very very interesting because they they it's kind of like the U.S. in that they have lots and lots of, of resources. I mean, they have all the sugarcane, and they have you know lots and lots of um, space to kind of grow biomass. So how can they valorize that? How can they benefit the the quality of life um, for Brazilian citizens based on all these these resources that they have? Um, and I think a lot of um, companies, both from the U.S. and from, from Europe and elsewhere, have been going to Brazil because it's probably the, the most um, affordable supply of sugar in the world. So if that's kind of like your, your feedstock cost is the sugars, then you kind of want to have a footprint in Brazil because that's, that's basically where, where it would be most effective to do those types of activities. So Brazil is for, for sure interested. Um, and I think also um, India is extremely interested, in, and they have lots of um, biotechnology. I mean, they've been doing lots and lots of fermentation and lots and types of agricultural types of types of work. Um, and maybe to a certain extent, they in certain areas, maybe molecular biology and so on, they might not yet be as advanced as places like the US, but I think they're, they're keeping their eyes open and they're starting to invest in the space um, as well too. I see. Um, and there are other places that maybe haven't been paying as much attention to um, kind of these new biotech um, Areas so maybe in the African continent, maybe in South Africa, um, or maybe in in some other you know 
places within within Africa, people are paying attention to it, but um, maybe not not as much um, there. Um, or maybe if you look in Eastern Europe um, and um, some other countries, maybe it's a little bit less represented. Um, but I mean, I think there's lots of places across the across the world. Singapore, for example, is investing a lot of money. The United Kingdom has been investing a lot of money. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of the countries are really thinking about competitiveness. Yes. They really need they they understand that this is kind of the the economy of the future. This is where all these things are going, um, and they want to make sure they basically have a, a seat at the table and that they can have um, intellectual as well as maybe you know physical manufacturing operations um, at home. Um, and they don't necessarily want to be entirely dependent on other other countries providing either the domain expertise um, or the actual products. Um, so I think this probably is like a national economy, you know, security type type of an issue, um, and and part of that is just you know n normal scientific competitiveness and academia and things like that. But I think it's also really about industry and potentially even in the defense sector. Um, I think there's lots of people that are looking into these things, whether it's um, for countermeasures. You know, for example, can we um, produce a lot of um, potential antibiotics that might be effective against new infectious diseases? Can we make new materials maybe to, to better protect our troops or to make lighter weight aircraft or more resilient armor? Um, I think there's lots and lots of application spaces and I think a lot of countries are very, very interested in that. Very true. Now, on the basis of advances in bioeconomy that you see, what, what are the emerging trends? Yeah, so I think there's, there's, several, there's several things. I mean, I think that um, one thing is that a lot of people are starting to look more and more into biology for fabricating things. So lots of um, fermentative types of products. So instead of sourcing everything from petroleum, um, sourcing things from more biological um, types of types of routes. Um, and I think really one of the things that's also going to happen a lot too is this, this kind of this concept of distributed biomanufacturing. So it's probably not going to be kind of if you if you look in the the petrochemical industry. My understanding is that there's there's kind of these um, these scaling laws, um, which is why you have these enormous refining plants, maybe you know in Texas and Louisiana, um, and basically to get to kind of like the real efficiencies, you have to get to very very big scales. Whereas with biology, you might have kind of slightly different challenges, where maybe just the logistics of the feedstocks force you to be kind of in a distributed operation. Um, and you can imagine, um, you know, things where you might have manufacturing operations many places across the country. Um, maybe more in a, in a military or defense type of a setting, you can imagine that you could actually be, instead of having to maintain these extended supply lines, you might be able to manufacture what you need at that particular site where you are. Um, or, you know, people have been talking about, you know, with NASA and space travel going to Mars. Um, I think there's lots of also, you know, you know trends in trying to figure out, you know, if, if we know that we have to have a, you know, a 20-year mission to go somewhere, we're gonna we basically can't supply it, you know, from Earth. We're gonna have to have it basically produced on the on the spacecraft itself. So, I think there's there's a lot of trends in trying to figure out, you know, how can I fabricate what I'm interested in biologically because that might be economically um, advantageous. Um, maybe I can get to new entirely new materials that I couldn't get to through traditional approaches. Uh, more of a distributed manufacturing type of an operation rather than completely a centralized way. Um, and you know, things you know that, that we might not have thought about before, but things like space travel and, and, and things like that. So I think there's there's lots of extremely interesting types of things that are that are happening. Absolutely, absolutely. Now the current backbone of our energy and chemical industries is carbon-based fossil fuels. 
today, even though you know we have some advances in these biosciences, we still rely primarily on oil, coal, and natural gas to run our cars or heat our homes and provide the raw material to you know many different products from drugs to plastics to you know name it fertilizer so how are we using how have we started using rather microorganisms to produce biofuels yeah so i think there's there's several things um along along those lines and maybe one thing just as you were you were mentioning um you know the, right now we reply rely a lot upon petroleum or natural gas coal um, and there are some really interesting um, companies um, and academic you know, efforts that are actually trying to think about how can we use natural gas as a feedstock. Um, natural gas is extremely attractive because it's a very, very reduced compound, um, as opposed to maybe like sugar, which is very, very oxidized. So if you're trying to make very reduced types of products, the natural gas might be a fantastic feedstock as opposed to something like a sugar. So maybe if you're trying to make therapeutics um, with lots of, you know, um, kind of oxidized compounds, um, sugar is fantastic, but maybe if you want to make fuels or other types of fully reduced um, compounds, then maybe natural gas is a way to go. So you could even think about using natural gas as a feedstock for some of these biological systems for, for making things like you're mentioning, like, like fertilizers or um, maybe animal um, types of feed um, or just making other types of interesting you know, chemicals and materials and things like that. Um, but in terms of biology, um, actually producing the fuels from maybe more from biomass as opposed to um, natural gas or coal or petroleum. Um, there's been a lot of work um, by by ourselves here at the Joint Bioenergy Institute and, and lots of other fantastic institutions around the, the country um, and around the world. Um, where the concept is that now that we're getting better at engineering, for example, plants, we might be able to have plants have more ideal compositions um, for converting them into, into downstream fuels. So oftentimes, um, what we do is we take the, the, the plants and we kind of break them into their constitutive components, um, such as maybe um, cellulose, which contains a lot of the six carbon sugars. Um, and microbes love to eat six carbon sugars. That's like their favorite. Um, so if you can maybe have a, have a tree or a grass that's almost exclusively six carbon sugars, that's going to be fantastic for your downstream microbes because that's what they really, really like. So can we engineer plants to have more you know, six carbon sugar rather than, than other types of things? Or maybe going forward, there's going to be lots of really interesting work and in how can we use the lignin component of the plant to make interesting um, chemicals and materials. So lignin is basically um, kind of an aromatic um, compound that's highly cross-linked. And for the most part, people have been just burning it for its energy um, content. Um, or some people have been trying to figure out how, how we can use it to make things like carbon fiber, other types of applications. Um, but if we might be able to engineer our microbes to use lignin or a slightly modified you know, structure of lignin, to make interesting chemicals and materials, that might be extremely exciting um, as well. Yes. And the fuels um, space in particular, um, what we've been doing a lot is engineering the microbes, basically by introducing these exogenous metabolic pathways um, to produce things they wouldn't normally um, uh, produce. So I think in the very opening remarks, you said something that we're no longer um, you know, stuck with what nature gives us. We can actually engineer it to make, to make what we want. Um, so right now, you know, the first generation of, of these fuels, we would have included things like ethanol um, or traditional biodiesel, which is essentially just like a, a triacylglyceride or something like a vegetable oil, and then, you know, basically trans, um, uh, you know, sterifying it in, into something like a first generation um, biodiesel. Um, what we've been doing now is actually engineering the organisms um, themselves to not make ethanol, 
but more of a direct replacement for things like a gasoline or a diesel or a jet fuel. Um, so maybe in the diesel space, you might have um, some terpenoid types of compounds. Um, at JBay, we've been we've been developing bisabolane, which is a 15 carbon um, kind of molecule um, that's basically be very good um, for for blending into diesels or potentially even into into jet fuels. Um, downstairs in our very building is Amaris, and they've been um, going after farnesane, which is a very related compound, and they've been producing it already in Brazil and using it in lots of the city buses in Sao Paulo. Um, and then in terms of you know gasoline, people have been um, doing things here with higher um, order um, alcohols. So at JBay, we've been doing kind of like a five carbon um, alcohol, um, isopentanol, um, which is an actually an, an excellent type of a, of a gasoline replacement. And some of the exciting things about these fuels um, is that not only do they work with kind of our existing cars and trucks, so you don't need a flex fuel vehicle, you can just kind of do a, dro a direct drop-in replacement. But the really exciting thing is that these, these fuels that we might be able to make um, biologically are even better suited for the next generation of engines. So people have been looking at new engine types that are kind of hybrids, for example, between like a diesel engine and a gasoline engine. Um, so it turns out that some of these fuels like isopentanol might outperform our existing kind of gasoline or diesel in those types of engines. So there's some efforts that are supported now by the Department of Energy in the US. Um, it's called Co-Optima, and the idea is can you kind of co-optimize the fuels together um, with the engines themselves? Um, so you try to, to evolve them both um, in parallel as opposed to just trying to keep the fuel constant and change the engine or change the engine and, and, and or keep the engine constant and change the fuel. So they're trying to co-optimize them together. And part of that is that biology might give us access to these new fuel molecules that maybe petrochemistry is going to have a really hard time yeah. hard time doing. So there's lots of very interesting things in the in the fuel space that's that's happening. Um, yes, so it seems. So it seems. So what is the status on biomass energy systems, or as you say, biorefineries? Yeah. So I think there's there's lots of there's lots of different efforts. Um, there's there's folks that are that are using because I was kind of referring to as you know plants. Um, so so trees and grasses. Um, there's other people that are working on kind of algal types of systems um, as as another kind of way of producing um, feedstock. So there's there's lots of um, efforts going into making better, you know, trees and grasses and, and, and algal systems. Um, there's lots of work going into how do you kind of um, pre-treat um, these plants or algal systems into maybe precursors to chemicals of interest. Um, so for example, can there be, and then this gets into the area more of kind of chemical engineering um, or even in some kind of enzymology. So we talked a little bit earlier about how um, Logistics makes it very um, complicated to ship um, feedstocks from one place to another where if you try to ship things more than about 60 miles, 100 miles, it's no longer cost effective. So what some people have been thinking about doing is, well, maybe you can have these little um, local refineries that might upgrade the biomass into these intermediates. Um, so it might be a sugar that, that they're basically upgrading it to. It might be other types of chemical intermediates. Um, so I think there's lots of interest going on right now, but how do you kind of um, you know, increase the, the energy density um, of, of some of these processes or just upgrade the value um, so that now you could effectively put them on the shipping containers or, or um, train cars or even think about using pipelines. So there might be, you know, liquid, you know, types of things that you can be shipping around that are, that are high value just as petroleum um, is today. And then there's lots and lots of um, work around the, the microbial engineering around how do you actually um, 
get a microbe at very efficient um, kind of metrics around like your yields or your titers or your productivities, how do you actually produce these new types of, of molecules um, in the context of, of the upstream feedstock and downstream processing and all these types of things? So there's lots of things um, happening happening in the space, and it's big teams of people, and it's distributed. It's not even in one country; it's across the world. Um, but there's lots and lots of types of activities in, in the space, and one of the things just to be aware of is that a lot of this work is not only happening um, in government or in academia, but it's also in industry. And an industry does, you know, can't keep um, its its um, its technology and its um, intellectual property very close to the chest. So there might be really interesting things that companies are doing right now that they just haven't made public yet. Yes, yes. So it seems now. There are reports that powering our planet would require between 15 and 18 terawatts of energy. How much of that could we manufacture with the tools of synthetic biology that we have at present? Yeah, so I, I um, am a little bit ignorant kind of in, in the global um, energy um, space. But what I can tell you is at least a little bit what I know about the, the U.S. energy expenditures. So my understanding, um, and probably like a hand-waving loose approximation, would be something, and you can you can probably do all the fact checking on this as well. But my understanding is that say let's let's say that we took the billion tons of biomass um, that's available each year in the U.S. and we just burned it for its energy um, co content. I think basically we would be providing about half of the energy needs of the U.S. per year. So if you basically went purely to a biomass solution, you'd probably only get half of the way there. So it's going to have to be other technologies as well. It can't just be biomass. Um, it also probably will have to be things like solar, wind, nuclear, and maybe as a stopgap um, kind of bridging technology, things like natural gas. Um, you know, maybe eventually at some point um, people get to the point where they can actually do fission reactors, or I'm sorry, fusion reactors, not just fission reactors. Um, but it's not purely going to be about biology. So I think maybe where biology is be, going to be the, the most useful um, is probably in producing liquid fuels. Um, so you might be able to power light-duty vehicles, um, passenger cars with the electricity, but you're probably going to have a, a big challenge in trying to power jets with the electricity. Um, they probably really need very, very high energy densities, and liquid fuels are perfect for that. Um, so while biology probably can't provide all of the energy requirements um, for a country like the U.S., it might be able to supply all of the liquid transportation fuels that are that are required. Um, so that you have to be kind of a little bit more strategic about um, where you're applying the biomass. And beyond just kind of fuels, which is an enormous market, there's also all the commodity chemicals. Um, so commodity chemicals, you know, in terms of a barrel of oil, I don't remember exactly what the numbers are, but say maybe around 10% of a barrel of oil go into chemicals, um, and the rest of it is largely into into fuels. Um, but also replacing that 10% of the barrel of oil for going into commodity chemicals and specialty chemicals and those types of things. The other thing that's been really interesting um, over the last decade or so is that people have been thinking about, okay, let's imagine a world where we have um, nuclear fusion reactors. So let's say we almost have endless electricity, no problem. But we don't have liquid fuels. So there have been programs um, supported by the, the Department of Energy and, and, and other agencies in the U.S., um, where they've been trying to um, figure out clever ways of going from electricity um, into biologically produced molecules. Um, and there's various ways that people have been thinking about that. There might actually be organisms themselves can actually just um, 
adhere to electronics and they might be able to convert electrical currents into kind of chemical um, products. There might be other ways of doing it. For example, you could just um, do lots of um, hydrolysis. So you basically just use electricity to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. And there are certain organisms that can basically use um, hydrogen gas as basically their source of reducing equivalents. And maybe carbon dioxide is their source of carbon. So there is an organism, for example, Ralstonia eutropha, which can basically take hydrogen gas and, and carbon dioxide as basically its, its sole you know, energy and, and carbon sources. Um, so there have been people figuring out, okay, if we have lots of cheap electricity, how can we you know, convert that into something that's more you know, biologically made? So there's lots of efforts that are ongoing in that space as well. And I think the problem there is that you might face very um, stiff penalties when you're converting energy from electricity into the liquid fuel. So it's going to be very lossy, I would imagine. But because liquid fuels are so important, or because chemicals are so important um, above and beyond what electricity can do, then I think people are going to be willing to make some of those trade-offs. Right, right. No, that would be great. You know, we will have to make some trade-offs. You know, we'll have to prioritize and evaluate the risk versus rewards. Now, over the years, we have seen the industrial mode of development, and it has worked for almost like two centuries mm -hmm. now. But it seems that you know we are slowly you know coming off the industrial model of development that is uh, coming to a close and uh, it will be replaced by an era of biological engineering as we have been talking for last almost an hour and we are going to transition from a world that relied on machines to the one that relies on biology and that is going to be uh, pretty amazing you know advances but what is the time frame we are looking at for the bioeconomy to have a significant impact yeah, so I think um, you know probably there still will be a lot of machines involved. Um, a lot of them might not look like maybe traditional types of you know manufacturing equipment. Um, although I still see a lot of that equipment still persisting for for, for a long time. Um, and and maybe the machines are going to be more biological you know focused types of instruments and even getting into very small microfluidic devices. But there still will be a tremendous amount of of robots, I would say. Um, even if, if a lot of the manufacturing capacity moves over to more biological as opposed to some of these other um, mechanisms. Um, so that's, 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 that's something just to kind of, kind of point out. And then the kind of getting, getting back to your question, can you re remind me, like you kind of wanted to know like where all of these things are going with, you know, going away from the traditional industry um, into kind of more of like an era where it's biology that's producing these things, like what else is going to be kind of, kind of changing? Like what else do we kind of anticipate? Yes. Um, I really do kind of, again, kind of getting back on these earlier points around distributed uh, manufacturing, mm -hmm. um, where it's going to be um, kind of lots of places across the country or across the world that are going to be producing things. I don't think it's just going to be one single central facility um, that makes things for a lot of, lot of places. So I think that can actually be extremely good um, yes. for people that don't necessarily live in big urban centers. Like if they do live in more rural parts of the, of, of the country, that they're going to be extremely relevant going forward because it might actually be the most cost-effective thing to do to manufacture right next to where your, your supply of your feedstock is. Yes, and we want to get rid of the dependencies. We don't want one you know, country or one you know, industry developing everything. We want this to be, like you said, distributed everywhere, so you know, right where you need it. And, and, that the questions, and I think the second part of your question was kind of around the timelines, like how fast is this going to happen? Um, there are, there are some, some challenges. So in the bioeconomy in general, um, some of the some of the things to think about is that there aren't necessarily established markets for some of these feedstocks. 
So there's very well-established markets for things like corn. Like there's, it's just, a, it's basically as a commodity, you can go to the Chicago board of trade and buy futures or options for, for corn. Um, but there probably isn't a market right now for switchgrass or for miscanthus. Um, so I think some of these supply chains and markets really kind of need to become matured before farmers are going to start converting over their crops. Um, because they're extremely you know, smart people and they're not going to just suddenly making something for which they can't sell it. If, if a market doesn't exist, like why am I going to, especially with some of these, um, these crops like miscanthus or switchgrass, which aren't annual crops, they're more perennials. So you make a long-term investment or, or things like trees are the same way. Um, you make long-term investments. So I think it's probably going to take um, some time before those markets really start to, to emerge and really make all of these things really, really possible on a big scale. Yeah. I would say on a shorter time scale, people are going to be looking much more into very, very high value products. So things like therapeutics or cosmetics or fragrances or um, flavor additives, um, things like that. Things where you don't necessarily need to make a ton of it, but you can get a very high price and you can kind of basically support all of your operations. Yes. Um, and as things like maybe as, as you know, food prices increase or um, maybe as oil prices increase, then you can take those same technologies and cost-effectively deploy them to make these commodity chemicals or these fuels, um, you know, th things, things like that. Um, now, in terms of other types of just general you know, technology um, timelines, um, I think you're already starting to see people starting to think about clever ways of interfacing 3D printing um, with some of these synthetic biology approaches. Um, so, you know, oftentimes if you're thinking about more, you know, tissues, like if, if you want to, for um, or to replace somebody's kidney, for example, are there ways that maybe we can actually grow um, a replacement kidney for somebody that's perfectly matched against the person that needs it instead of having to get like a kidney transplant? Um, and there's very interesting and exciting work that's ongoing in that in that field. Or maybe instead of trying to go through, um, you know, oftentimes early preclinical work for a drug, you might be using animal models to test. So maybe. You look at mice or you look at um, rabbits or you might look at other types of animals um, to basically kind of test for things before you actually go test them in people. And there's also a, a lot of really interesting work that's happening around, well, maybe can, uh, kind of like in a small form factor, maybe with microfluidics, you know, can I actually have kind of like cell culture representing each of the different organisms in a person? Um, and it's not just some generic person. You could almost imagine basically trying to match the exact organs that'd be coming from a patient. So maybe a particular patient has their own custom microfluidic device that has basically little replicas of their tissues on the chip. So you can actually test for a specific patient, is this drug gonna be efficacious? What is its toxicity profile? Are there gonna be side effects? Um, so there's all kinds of exciting things that people have been talking about. And they're starting to work on these things. And it's a really good question about, you know, what is the timeline for this? Because you have to do the technology development, but then you also have to go through all the clinical trials, um, all the regulatory, you know, types of types of approvals. Um, so some of these things, you know, um, are not going to be here next year, um, but they're probably not going to take 50 years to mature either. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. But it's it's probably in this intermediate, um, you know, time frame where we're going to probably start to see very successful products in the short term, very high value, high profit margin types of products. Yes. Um, and then maybe as market shift for food prices and for oil prices, um, maybe kind of, you know, domestic security types of issues, maybe you start having more emphasis on these things. Um, mm -hmm. And th that'll kind of change the, the, the product portfolio. And then in terms of the medical side of things, 
I'm sure you can talk with people that are much better versed than I am on this. Um, but I think they have a lot of challenges in, in terms of the regulatory environment and, um, and other and types I, of issues. I think more than that, uh, the trust issue is also going to come because mm -hmm. at this point we see that you know genetically modified organisms, there's a lot of fear you know, in the um, human population and a lot of people are not comfortable eating you know, genetically modified food. So when they come to know that these are all synthetic biology, these are all you know, coming from uh, uh, synthesis, uh, you know, created human-made organisms, there is going to be some, you know, resistance that we will have to overcome. It's it's going, it's a process that we will just have to go through. And yeah. there are a lot of different, you know, variables, and we will have to identify each of those variables and uh, uh, educate and uh, create awareness. That's the whole reason of this risk roundup, that we are trying to create education yeah. and awareness so that people understand, you know, what this uh, science is about and, you know, where we are going and how, how it is going to impact each and every one of us, each and every entity, you know, across nations. Now, sure. coming back to just, you know, last few points that your organization, Synthetic Biology Institute, as well as the Joint Bioenergy Institute, what is their focus broadly? You know, I don't want to know any confidential uh, sure. research that is going on, any proprietary, but broadly, what is their focus and where they are going? Yeah, I can tell you about maybe specifically the, the types of um, entities that I'm involved with. Um, and then if you have maybe some, some broader you know, points of conversation, we can talk about those too. Um, I kind of, in, in the introduction, you kind of mentioned a couple of the institutions that I'm, that I'm working together with. Um, and one of them is the, the Joint Bioenergy Institute. And that's a United States Department of Energy. Um, it's within their Office of Science. Um, and JBA's mission is very much a basic science, you know, basic technology um, development. And we're really trying to um, develop the science and technologies um, for enabling us to go from plants all the way to um, replacement fuels for things like gasoline and diesel and jet fuel. So we have folks that are working kind of in the plant science, maybe chemical engineers, enzymologists that are working on how to convert those plants into fermentable sugars, um, synthetic biology types of folks, um, microbiologists, um, molecular biologists that are engineering the microbes um, to eat the sugars and produce the fuels. And then we have a lot of um, technologists, so people that are working on um, mass spectrometry methodologies or microfluidics or proteomics, metabolomics, people that are working on software types of tools. Um, but it's overall, it's a very basic science um, and technology type of a mission. Um, and we basically publish everything that we do. We don't keep any trade secrets. Um, we try to basically get all of our technologies out. So it's, it's great for us um, if we can license our technologies and out into industry so that they can benefit from all of these things. Um, so that's one of, one of the, the organizations that, that, that I'm involved with. Um, other organizations, um, not too far away from the Joint Bioenergy Institute is the Joint Genome Institute. So it's another um, Department of Energy, um, Office of Science supported um, entity. And they've probably been best known um, for their DNA sequencing. So they were heavily involved in the Human Genome Project. That's basically how they got their start. Um, but increasingly, they're kind of um, expanding their, their, their breadth into other types of questions. So they too are now kind of working in the synthetic biology space. Um, so in addition to just sequencing organisms for their, their user community. Um, they're also starting to synthesize um, constructs to support their, their user's science. So the Joint Genome Institute is, is a user um, facility, and they really basically do science and technology to support the science of all their users. So it's nothing better for the Joint Genome Institute to, 
to basically have their users do fantastic science and get nature and science publications. So that's basically what they what they really like. But they they have a very broad um, kind of focus um, of interest. Um, another type of entity that's just getting started up now is the the Agile Biofoundry, and that's supported by the Department of Energy. Um, it's in its um, Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy office, so it's a little bit more of an applied um, office. And the Agile Biofoundry is, is very much an industry-facing um, type, of, type of an entity. And what we're really trying to do um, is figure out how we can contribute to valorizing all of this United States biomass. So we have all this billion tons of biomass. How can we make it valuable? And um, one of the things just to kind of realize is that if you want to develop a biological process to make a product, say you want to start with a plant and you want to make an interesting chemical, whatever it is, or a material, a fuel, um, the timelines for actually developing that process are very long, so they can you know, take five to 10 years, um, and they, they might cost you know, 25 or $50 million. So there's a big barrier if you want to actually develop a biological process. It's very lengthy, um, and it costs a lot. And part of the reason for that is that for the most part, companies, um, they spend a lot of money on all their technology and all of their know-how and how to make things. Um, and they don't necessarily, it's not to their advantage to share all that information with other companies. Um, so our kind of vision for the Agile Biofoundry um, is really kind of analogous to what maybe um, municipalities or cities would be doing with public infrastructure, um, with maybe, for example, public transportation. So one kind of way of thinking about it is that um, maybe you can imagine all of chemical space, like all the materials that we might be able to, to make, um, is almost kind of like a city map where every different molecule that you might be making might be like a different residential address. Um, and maybe, you know, as you're going to one particular molecule of interest, maybe there's those little city centers, these little hubs. So as a government entity, can we kind of build, you know, the, the public transportation where we can get you, you know, from something like a, a, a plant feedstock to these really important kind of hubs around this chemical space. So we're basically building kind of like the, the, the train systems, the bus systems, um, they can kind of get you to these very important places. And then it's up to industry who has all the business intelligence and marketing um, you know, intelligence to figure out, okay, now we, we know where we want to go to. We know what molecule we want to make. Can we basically benefit from all this government infrastructure to make our jobs a lot easier because we don't have to figure it out from scratch. We can now benefit from basically these predefined and predeveloped optimized routes to these key, these key hubs. Um, so we're really trying to figure out how we can um, reduce the development timelines, reduce the development costs, make sure we can disseminate broadly all this information across companies so that a new startup company doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. They don't have to recapitulate everything that every other company has done. They can basically start with all of this kind of government um, infrastructure and then take it from there. Um, so that's what we're kind of thinking about in, in that, particular, um, that particular entity. No, that is very useful. What you just suggested, that is very useful. So that you know, not everyone has to start from scratch, and you know, they already have this uh, foundation that is created by organizations like yours. Now, what are some financial, non-financial, or technical, non-technical challenges that uh, all these groups that you are working with, or institutes that you are working with, they are facing currently? Yeah. So maybe if we can start with um, financial, you know, types of types of types of approaches. Um, so something just to kind of you know be be aware of, and I'm sure this is true of every country, not just the U.S. Um, but in the U.S., we're having a really big administration change, um, and there's still lots of uncertainties around you know where the administration is going to have its priorities and where it's going to have other priorities. 
So I think as of right now, um, the big question for us is just these uncertainties around what's going to be prioritized and what isn't going to be prioritized. So it's mostly kind of the uncertainties, the risk around that, which is problematic for us. Um, a lot of these efforts like the Joint Bioenergy Institute or this new effort like the Agile Biofoundry, um, we actually are extremely fortunate with the, with the resources that we have and not just kind of like the new resources that we're getting, um, but the Department of Energy over the last decades has been investing a lot in our infrastructure. So we have fantastic robots, we have fantastic analytical capabilities, we have fantastic scientists. Um, so we're extremely, extremely fortunate. So most of our financial um, types of questions are kind of around, you know, budgeting certainties. Um, and, you know, no one's going to turn down additional resources. So everyone's going to say that, oh, if they only had more resources, they could do more. And that's always true. Um, but I think it's mostly the uncertainty right now, which is kind of challenging. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of some of the, the more technical um, types of challenges, um, I think there's a lot of, of technical challenges right now um, around um, how to actually operate um, the bioeconomy in a very distributed fashion. So it's a lot easier when all of your people, all of your information systems, all of your samples, all of your instruments are all in one particular building. But how do you start um, developing kind of logistic systems and information systems that can support all of these efforts across different states or different countries? How do you kind of operate in a very distributed type of a fashion? Um, and these are not new problems. I mean, um, international companies um, have been operating in a distributed fashion for, for a long time. But maybe in terms of doing some of the manufacturing, it's maybe a little bit different than, than has been, been the case in, in the past. Um, there's lots and lots of other types of technical challenges. Um, maybe just to mention a couple. Um, so our ability to actually test biological systems to see if they're actually you know, performing um, as we'd want them to. Um, oftentimes, we can have um, tests which are kind of um, very shallow but very fast, or we can have very in-depth types of analyses, but they take a really long time. Um, so I think one technical challenge is going to be for us, especially as we're still in this trial and error type of a mode, how can we actually get the depth of really nice analytics and make it go a lot faster? So kind of testing types of challenges, how do you increase the throughput? Um, a really, really big technical challenge is how do we actually make biology predictable. So in electronics, we have very good simulation types of tools. You can almost just on a computer, in a, in a computer design program, design a new integrated circuit. And you can be extremely confident that if you actually fabricated that, that chip, it would actually work as you intended. Um, sometimes there's probably still going to be failures, but almost all the time it's going to work. In biology, you know, we're just not at that point. So I think a lot of the predictive tools, the modeling tools, um, all of the repositories, for all of the past information that you've gathered. Um, a lot of the information that we've accumulated are just in a person's head or maybe in a paper lab notebook. How do you kind of standardize all of that information in such a way that's accessible to, um, to machines to learn from? So right now, social media companies like um, LinkedIn or Facebook, they have tons and tons of data. It's well-structured. They can do all kinds of interesting learnings on it. And I think we're trying to start to do that same thing in biology where if we had all this, all this data and it's in a, in a nice, structured, systematic way, we might be able to do very similar types of learnings and make, and make everything that we do more, more predictable. Um, so there's those types of challenges. I think there's lots of challenges. Um, you mentioned earlier kind of about the context dependence of, of biology. Um, you know, you can take one gene and it might operate one way in one organism, but not an entirely in a different organism. I think there's some other types of technical challenges around process context. 
Um, so a lot of times biologists focus only on the fermentation bioreactor. So they only focus on their microbe and they don't pay attention to the upstream feedstock. They don't pay attention to the downstream you know, separation and purification processes. So how do you really design all of these processes in a, in a holistic type of a manner? Because the upstream feedstock is going to you know, impact your microbe and your microbe is going to impact the downstream product. Um, so one just very basic example of that is let's say that um, you're using your microbe um, to produce a monomer that you're going to uh, polymerize into a carpet. So some type of a polymer. Um, so DuPont has a product, um, Serona, which is basically um, basically a, a biologically produced um, uh, polymer. Um, and one of the things that they observed was that when they were producing this monomer, the microbe made a very, very, very small colored contaminant product as well. And it might only be like a part per million. But the problem was they wanted this completely, you know, um, clear or, or white type of a, of a fabric um, or of like a polymer. But that one little part per million, um, like say, for example, yellow contaminant basically made the whole thing yellow and now they can't sell their product anymore. So little, little minor changes in maybe the microbe can really dramatically impact kind of the downstream um, product. Um, and thinking about all that thing as a, as a whole is also a technical challenge because how do you kind of get all of these different expertise um, to kind of communicate with each other and how do you kind of automate the design of all these things together? But there's, there's all kinds of like technical um, challenges that kind of go along with that. And you also kind of mentioned some of the regulatory types of challenges. Um, and to a certain extent, I think there, there, there is a lot of you know, regulation that, that's already on the, on the books and it's already very applicable. Um, but there are going to be some situations where it's not necessarily um, as clear as it could be, or maybe there are some new emerging capabilities and technologies that maybe um, the regulations, while they cover, might could potentially cover in a, in a, in a slightly better way. Um, so I think there's some regulatory types of things. Um, and there's also some cultural challenges. Um, so we kind of talked about in the beginning that it's really important for scientists and engineers to be thinking about the broader aspects and implications of what they're doing. Um, so you don't basically want to have somebody doing something which potentially could have a lot of bad, you know, outcomes. Um, you might know at the, at the outset that those things are possible and maybe the benefits out, outweigh some of those, those bad outcomes. But you want to have people thinking broadly about these things so that you don't just don't bring into the world something that should never have been brought in. Mm -hmm. So I think it's also a cultural type of a change um, and a cultural challenge. Um, to make sure that people are thinking broadly and not just being tunnel visioned around their scientific publication or, you know, be able to improve a process when maybe you have to think about these other, these other types of things. Yes, absolutely. No time is now to start thinking about all these different factors. And that is the whole reason we started this roundup uh, series so that we can start addressing each and every uh, different you know, topic that is coming our way, that different new innovations, new ideas, new investments, new industries that and you know their conversions, how it's going to impact the current industries, you know, our nation's economy, the overall global economy, all those factors we need to evaluate. And this is as far as synthetic biology and bioeconomy goes, this is the first session. So we had to, you know, very quickly go through uh, several different topics and 
and uh, so that our global viewers and uh, listeners get yeah. familiar with that but in the coming months and uh, years we are going to address each and every topic in much greater depth and you know we will provide the understanding that uh, all of our viewers and listeners are looking for so uh, nathan thank you so much for participating in risk roundup today we appreciate your thoughtful insight on synthetic biology bioeconomy and biofuels especially our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the information you provided on the advances in synthetic biology and the emerging bioeconomy across nations and even if a single individual or entity can come up with an idea to innovate using synthetic biology and bring the much needed transformation to move from industrial economy to bioeconomy based on the discussion we had today this risk roundup dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that well, thank you very much, Shishri. I'm very happy that I was able to participate and talk with you today. Wonderful, Nathan. So no scientific achievement has promised so much or has come up with clear possibilities and potential for global transformation. And none has brought opportunity for deliberate abuse and misuse or existential risk to the human species as synthetic biology. Although we speak about the biological future that can be engineered the way we want, it is important to understand and evaluate whether we have enough knowledge to prevent the existential risk. Risk Group Cybersecurity Risk Research Center and Strategic Security Risk Research Center are created for this very reason to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk-facing NGIOA in CGS, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space, and discuss, debate, and define necessary framework structure processes, tools, and technologies to manage the security risk of not only the digital global age, but also of the coming technological superconvergence and you know the areas like bioeconomy and uh, synthetic biology. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they work together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to the management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. It is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our, sec uh, our security. So if you build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.